Father, we do praise you and bless you and worship you this morning for who you are and for all that you've done. We thank you for the privilege of being yours. We thank you for the privilege of being yours together. And we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to hear you speak to us together again this morning from your word. And as we come to your word in this time, in these moments, we pray that you would help us to really hear, to grasp, to understand with our hearts and our lives what you have to say this morning to each of us and to all of us together. And by your spirit, would you bring fruit in our lives through this time in your word today. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been guilty of distracted driving? Okay, I see spouses going, come on. All right, just asking. According to the CAA and their statistics from 2017, these are Canadian numbers, people who are driving with a cell phone and it's being used in any way or manner are eight times more likely to be involved in an accident. Eight times more likely. The CAA reports that 26% of all motor vehicle accidents in 2017 involved somehow the use of a cell phone, even hands-free, even hands-free. They say that if you're using a cell phone even hands-free, that your eyes might be looking at everything around you, but because your brain is engaged in conversation, you are actually only able to process 50% of the information coming at you from your driving environment. They say that if you are driving at 90 kilometers an hour, and you check a text message for five seconds, it is the equivalent of driving the length of a football field blindfolded. Distracted driving is a huge issue, isn't it, today? But it's not just driving. We can't, you know, I, you, know you talk about people that can't walk and chew gum at the same time, right, like me. Uh, we can't walk and talk or text at the same time either. They report that over 1,100 people are treated in American emergency rooms at hospitals every year for injuries resulting from walking and texting or using some kind of digital equipment. And the researchers that report those numbers say that that number is probably very low because so many people will go to the hospital for treatment for injuries and they are going to lie or just hide the fact that that's how I got hurt because they're so embarrassed. I mean, they report a 24-year-old woman who was seriously injured by walking into a telephone pole while texting. A 28-year-old man who was seriously injured by falling into a ditch as he walked along the road talking on his cell phone. There was a 12-year-old boy who was hit by a pickup truck as he crossed the street while playing a video game. Hmm. There was a cyclist who was talking on his cell phone and ran over a senior citizen pedestrian. I mean, these, these things happen. Is talking on the phone or texting a bad thing or an evil thing? No. 
No. Oh boy, okay, I didn't mean to start that debate. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. But how and when we're doing it and whether we're focusing on what we're actually supposed to be doing in the moment is a huge issue, isn't it? We have to be so careful that it doesn't take us away from what we're doing. It's not just texting and talking on the phone, just life in general. What is the name of the person who served you your coffee at Tim Hortons yesterday? Do you know? I mean, they wear name tags. When you're standing there at that counter, are you seeing a person across from you? Or an obstacle between you and your coffee that's slowing down your day and messing up your schedule? What do you see? Are we so focused on, I've got, to, I've got to go here, 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 and here, and I left late this morning, so this is on me, but really it's everybody else's problem now, and so I, I'm late, and I've got to get all these things done, and I just need a cup of coffee to go, and this person, what, they want to smile at me? I haven't got time for that. Is, is that how we function? It's so easy for that to happen, isn't it? It's so easy for us to focus on the things that aren't really the main point and to miss the things and the people who are. That's why there's a seminary professor who every year, one of, the, uh, one of the questions on his final exam that's weighted the heaviest for marks is some version of, what is the name of the person who served you lunch in the cafeteria yesterday? Or what is the name of the person that cleans this building? Why? Because it is so easy for us to walk through life and miss the people around us because we're focused on things to do. And they might not be bad things, but we're, we're totally missing the point as we go along. It's easy for that to even happen in church life and ministry, isn't it? We, we come in the door, we're in a hurry, we've got to get the kids to their class, we've got to get to our class. I've got to talk to these three people about what's going on this week, I've got to go do my responsibilities. When it's done, I've got to run and do this and do that. And in the meantime, we, we can miss all kinds, of, all kinds of people along the way and miss opportunities to see people. Here at Harrow Baptist, we've got a lot going on right now. We've got our, our project going on, remodeling our foyer. Isn't it looking good? Yeah. Th thank you to people that are doing that. We have people coming in. And that's not black and gray. That is winter blanket and midnight skiing. <laughs> huh? You didn't know this was that fancy, but it is. It is. But they're doing a great job, and we appreciate that. And they're coming in morning shift, afternoon shift, evening shift. That's great. We have people that have been working hard. Our, our, our deacons and our leadership team have been working hard on finishing off this incorporation process. And we're in that process now of just winding that down, and we have our meeting coming up. That's important, too. A plan to protect. A lot of people doing a lot of work, and Janet's got a lot of extra files now on, on each of you and all that kind of thing as we're doing all of that. Important, and it needs to happen. That's okay. That's good. We have a lot of programs and things going on, and that's okay. But that, that's not our mission. Our mission is to be disciples who make disciples. And so it's easy for us, even in the middle of all that we're doing, to miss the point and the people along the way if we're not careful. It's easy for us to end up engaging in distracted discipling. And we're not really discipling because we're distracted by other things. 
This morning, we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel between chapters 20 and 25 called The Shadow of the Cross. And we're looking at the things Jesus said and taught and did in that last week heading up to the cross. And with with the cross hanging over all of it, what was he saying and how was he conducting himself? And what do we take away from that as his followers? And this morning as we continue on, we'll look at and we'll hear a few details of what Jesus did and some of the encounters Jesus had as he approached Jerusalem and as he entered Jerusalem that first week, that last week of his life heading up to the cross. But in the process, do not look for those details to the degree that you totally miss the heart of the king on display in the process. You need to see the heart of Jesus as he walks through. I don't get this right all the time at church and at home and in the community, and you don't either. But we're working at it, aren't we? And our example is our Lord and our Savior Jesus, who with all that was hanging on his heart and his mind, all that was hanging over him as he headed to Jerusalem, we saw last week as how he told the disciples what was coming. And as that's hanging over him, he still had his heart attentive to people around him. He still embraced their needs. He was still open to them. So let's look at the heart of the king together. And as we follow him, may he continue to shape our hearts to be like his so that we're not distracted disciple makers. Amen? We're in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. We're picking up in verse 29, right where we left off last week. Matthew 20, verse 29. And here this morning we see a heart of compassion in Jesus the Christ headed for the cross. And as they went out of Jericho, remember Jesus is heading from the north. He's heading south now to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Great crowds followed Jesus as he was headed south for the Passover. So he had the 12 with him as we saw last week and he's got this large crowd of followers coming with him too. Add into the mix of that all of the people from the north traveling south to Jerusalem for Passover. And it was a zoo. I mean, it was chaos. These roads were full of people. We talked about that with the singing and the laughing and the kids running around and trying to count heads and all that kind of thing and everything that's going on. As they're walking along and making their way and they head here, they leave, uh, they leave Jericho and they're heading south, and at the side of the road there by the city gates, as they're parading out, there's two blind men. Probably there, begging for money from people who are heading to Jerusalem for worship. And as they're there being ignored, being stepped around, being commented on by the, the crowds, they hear that there's an extra 
buzz in the audience, the audience, the, the crowd. There's an extra excitement and, and energy level in this particular part of the crowd. What's going on? And so they start asking, and people say, well, it's Jesus. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And they call out to Him, Lord, have mercy on us. And then they use the term, Son of David. Promised One. The Messiah. This is who we believe You to be. Lord, have mercy on us. And we look at the crowds and we say, they're ignoring these men. They're stepping around them. And then when these men start calling out to Jesus for help, what do they do? They try to shut them up. Stop bugging Jesus. Stop slowing down our parade. We've got places to be. This is indeed the Messiah, but He's our mighty King and we're going to Jerusalem and who knows what might happen there, but we have no time for mercy. Thank you very much. we got things to do. And they're on their way. And it echoes in our minds another story of the Jericho Road and a Samaritan lying there in desperate need and people heading for worship, just a little too busy, thank you very much, to stop and help. And as these people are stepping around them and yelling at them to be quiet, they just, they just, this is no time for pride. This is their opportunity and they yell even louder, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Have mercy on us. And Jesus hears them. And He doesn't just hear them as another sound and noise in the chaos and crowd that day. But He hears what they're saying. And he listens. He stops, Matthew says. Look at the detail there. He stops. And he turns. And it sounds like he walks to them as they walk to him because Jesus approaches them and he says, what is it you want me to do for you? It's like, Please give us our sight. Jesus sees them for who they are in their need. He hears them. He takes the time for them on a busy day. There are things. Do you think Jesus has a few things going on on his heart and mind right now? As he heads for Jerusalem and he knows this is when and where he's about to be arrested and tried and killed. All of that coming up. But he sees these men in need. And he takes the time to walk over to them. Jesus could have healed them with a word. We've seen Jesus heal people and he's not even in the same town. But what does he do? He walks over and he touches their eyes. These men who have been ignored for so long, sidestepped for so long, sidelined for so long, and Jesus in compassion reaches out and touches their eyes and heals them. There's a lot of power in a touch, isn't there? Jesus didn't need to touch them to heal them. He touched them to connect with them. He touched them because He was moved with compassion. This was more about just their sight. This was about them. And He's saying, you matter. You're worth my time. You're worth my attention. You're worth my touch. And He connects with them and cares for them on that level. Touch is so important. Think of a baby with its mother. Touch. Think of when, when you're dealing with something so heavy and, and you, you can't even hardly bring yourself to talk about it, but somebody who knows and loves you walks by and they just squeeze your shoulder. <laughs> I'm here. <sighs> Touch matters, doesn't it? 
It matters to all of us. A couple of psychologists did a, a study fairly recently, the last two years, of NBA teams, professional basketball players. And they studied the impact and effect of celebratory touches amongst players. And they included in this study fist bumps, high fives, chest bumps, leaping shoulder bumps, chest punches, head slaps, head grabs, low fives, high tens, full hugs, half hugs, and team huddles. And they tracked it all. And they checked into it. And you know what their research discovered? They concluded that teams whose players touch each other the most often are the most successful teams. And the teams whose players are much more disconnected don't do so well. And they went on to write about, the, again, this is just demonstrating what, what touch communicates. It's a connection. It's your value to me. It's we're in this together. It's I love you, you matter, all those kind of things. That connecting and that caring and, and what that does for the human heart. And so Jesus reaches out in compassion at a busy, stressful time for him to listen, to see them, and to touch them. They now follow Jesus. They jump in line with everyone else and they start following Jesus. But it's not just in the excitement and expectation of what might happen in Jerusalem. It's for complete gratitude for what just happened at the gates of Jericho. And look at what Jesus did for us and the time He took for us. Jesus, our Lord and our King, at that kind of a time of focus and weight on His heart and His mind, still had a heart of compassion and He was not too busy for people. How about us as His followers? Does that describe us, that heart of compassion for people? regardless of what's going on? This heart of compassion is also shown to be a heart of humility. This parade continued on from Jericho south towards Jerusalem. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, chapter 21, verse 1, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. These are the events, of course, of Palm Sunday. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, starting off that final week. 
over a quarter of Matthew's Gospel is dedicated to these eight days. To this climax, this turning point in the life of Jesus and this turning point in all humanity, all human history. This is the turning point. And as he comes, he comes into the the city riding on this donkey. And we've talked about this so many times at at Palm Sunday as we rehearse these events and we go through it. And we see that Jesus comes in riding on this donkey and Matthew quotes Zechariah the prophet. He gives a partial quote of those verses to say that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Zechariah 9 is an expanded version of that. Matthew's giving a brief quote there. In Zechariah 9, he says, Your king is coming to you righteous, having salvation, being victorious for you, righteous and having salvation. And what are these people singing? Hosanna, which means save. They're quoting Psalm 118. They're calling out that this is a messianic psalm and they're singing it, saying, this is the son of David. This is the one we've been waiting for. God, save us now and use him. That's what they're singing. But as he comes along, he's, he's riding not on this super stallion, this war horse, the victorious mount of a, of a, of a, a conquering king or something. Zechariah 9 goes on to say that this one will bring peace to the nations. And Jesus does not come on a war horse, but on a donkey, a symbol of peace and humility. It is time now, finally, as He enters the city, it is time now for Jesus to be seen for who He is. No more hiding. No more telling people, don't don't go talking about this yet. It's now time for this to happen. But this is not the typical coronation process. That celebration is still future. This is more a reflection of what Jesus said as we looked at last week in chapter 20 back in verse uh, 26 to 28. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would serve be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And here he comes humbly. No limos and lineups of black suburbans surrounded by police cars with flashing lights and blaring sirens. No making sure the press from every nation knows that he's arriving so they can be all lined up to make sure we get maximum coverage of this event. Jesus rides that donkey into the city of Jerusalem that day amongst all of those crowds with the people waving their palm branches and laying palm branches down there, a national symbol, we're taking back our nation and he's the guy that's going to do it. As they sing his praises, he's riding in humbly on this donkey. And as we read the gospel accounts and we fold them together, we see that Jesus is riding in and he is carefully looking around. And he's looking at the crowds and he's looking at the city as he's coming down into the city. And there's so many things going through his heart and his mind. He knows that right now, today, I hear the cheers of so many. But in mere days, there will be a different crowd gathered and it will all be jeers. He knows that right now in this place, they are praising Him. 
But very shortly, the only voices left to be heard will be those who are mocking him. He sees this crowd that seems so ready and willing and eager to welcome him in and crown him as king, but he knows the only crown in his immediate future is a, a mocking, painful, abusive crown of thorns. Luke 19 tells us that as Jesus rides down into the city, he's weeping. Not for joy because it's finally his time. Not for himself because of the suffering that awaits him. But for the city and the people that he sees before him. Because he knows that their expectations are misplaced in how he's going to bring them peace. And on what their need really is. And he knows that they are going to pay dearly for rejecting him. And as he comes into that city, Jesus, our Lord and our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, enters Jerusalem with a heart of humility. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give himself as a ransom for many came with a heart of humility that led him to service and sacrifice. What about you and I as followers of Jesus? Are we walking with that heart of compassion and that heart of humility? This isn't about us. This is about honoring God and helping others. Is that that our heart? Well, that parade didn't end at the gates of the city. It ended at the temple, so let's keep going. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And then leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus comes humbly with a heart of compassion on the back of the donkey. They come down into the city and they make their way to the temple. The crowds came for what purpose? For Passover. They came to come to the temple to bring their sacrifice, to come as an act of worship as well as celebration. And as they came, Jesus went right with them into the courts of the temple. And the Gospel writers tell us that Jesus took His time and He looked around and He drank it all in. He saw everything that was happening. He checked it out and then Jesus was angry. Now I've heard people teach this passage in almost embarrassing ways. You see, we would rather picture Jesus with compassion touching the eyes of the blind man to heal him. We'd rather see Jesus in humility on the the donkey with the cheering crowds. But we don't like this picture of angry Jesus. We don't know what to do with him. 
Jesus was not going to the money changers in the temple and those that were selling all their animals in the courts of the temple and patting them on the head and saying, now, now, you know, when your shift's over today, just pack this up and don't come back tomorrow. Or, you know, why don't you just quietly and subtly line your animals up and single file them out of here, okay? And we'll make room for some more people. That's not what he did. The Gospels tell us he fashioned a whip and he drove those animals and their sellers out of the courts of the temple. He was kicking and flipping tables. Coins were scattering everywhere. He was angry. Why? Why? Why were these same hands that had just touched so gently the eyes of the blind man now throwing tables over and chasing people out of there? Why? Well, he quotes Isaiah 56, where God says the point of the temple was not just for Jews to come and worship, but it was to be a beacon to the nations. And he said, this, this is what it said, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, is the entire quote there. And what's going on is the people are now, the religious leaders are allowing this to all go on in the courts of the Gentiles, which is the outer court. The court where the people from all around the nations were to come and to worship God and pray and meet with God. But there's no room for them because we've got to buy and sell in here. We're selling uh, sacrifices here at a premium. We're exchanging money for people, making sure we get our cut. We're profiting from these people. We're taking advantage of the poor. And we're excluding people that have been invited to come and meet with God. And we're turning it into something about us and we're keeping them out. And Jesus was angry. And he cleared out the court of the Gentiles of those that were there forbidding people to come, neglecting people, rejecting people, and somehow turning worship into something about themselves. He goes on to say it was supposed to be a house of prayer here, but you've made it a den of robbers. That's actually the compilation of two quotes. One's from Isaiah 56, as we mentioned. This one's from Jeremiah 7. Now let me ask you this. Uh, not from personal experience, of course, but from, from uh, you know, movies and TV and such. A den of robbers, what is it? <laughs> it's not where the robbing happens. The den of robbers is not where the robbing happens. The den of robbers is where the robbers go after they've gone out and done whatever they've wanted to do out there. And now they retreat and they hide somewhere where they have this false sense of security where I am okay in here. And everybody in here thinks like I do and they think I'm okay and I'm just fine and if I hide in here, nobody can touch me and I'm good. That's what's going on. Because in Jeremiah 7, God says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it declares the Lord. You think you're safe in there? That you can go out there and do whatever you want in the name of religion and in the name of yourselves and you can do anything you want out there all week long 
And then you're going to come here on the Sabbath and worship me and sacrifice and sing and do all these wonderful things and say, oh, see, we're just fine in here. God says, I see it all and it's unacceptable. And Jesus is telling them, the ones that are crowded in here are excluding the ones that God wants in there and the ones that have forced their way in and are excluding everybody else have no place here. And so Jesus is clearing out the court of the Gentiles of those who shouldn't be there to make room for those who should. That's what's going on here. And he comes with his heart of genuine worship and prayer, all with a heart for the glory of God. That's why if you jump just down to verse 18 for just a second here, if you jump over to verse 18 for a minute, in the morning as he was returning, this is the next day, uh, to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Some people, what, what in the world is going on with this fig tree? If you look at the way the Gospels record this and where they put it in their reports, this is connected to the cleansing of the temple. The prophets, a number of prophets, referred to Israel as a fig tree. And based on the timing, we know that in, in April there would be leaves, but there wouldn't be figs until May. But Jesus walks up to this fig tree and it all oh, looks fantastic. It's full from a distance. Oh, it's full leaf. It's just beautiful. And he walks up and he's looking for that first fig and it's not there. And he curses that fig tree. Why? Is he still angry and wound up from cleansing the temple? No. Is he hangry? He's hungry and there's no fig on that tree and so he's angry and he curses the tree. I've heard passage taught like that. Can you believe it? You know, those Snickers bars? You know, who are you when you're hungry? And, you know, that, 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 those hangry words, right? You know, I'm irritable and confused and dramatic and all those kind of things. Cursor of figs is not on there. It's not. That's not what's going on. Jesus is hungry, and so he's looking for something to eat. But what's he saying? He's saying, that's exactly what we found at the temple yesterday. Everything looked good from a distance. Wow, crowds, we got them. Action, you better believe it. Sacrifices, what do you want? We'll sell it to you. And we had all kinds of things going on. We got the people in all their gowns parading around and there's all kinds of songs being sung and sacrifices being done. Wow, it looks fantastic. But when you get right up close and look, there's no real fruit. There's no real fruit. And so that Jesus cleanses the temple. He clears it out. And what happens, verse 14 says, these people leave and who comes in? The people that had been neglected and rejected and kept out. Now the blind and the lame come into him in the temple and he heals them. He meets the needy and he helps them. He's not there to use them for his gain and purposes. He helps them. He heals and accepted those who had been neglected. He clears the way and welcomes in the Gentiles who had been rejected. With a heart of compassion, he restores them and heals them and helps them. He has a heart of true worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A heart of true compassion. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's about to tell us that in chapter 22. The greatest commandments. And this is evidence of the one who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus comes and says, these people are not in the way with their needs. Where else are they going to go? To who else can they come? 
This is the place where they're supposed to come meet with God. I am the one who makes it possible. And Jesus reminds us there something that we try to remind ourselves of here as a church family regularly, and that is that people are not helping us with our ministry. They don't, people do not help us with our, our ministry. People are our ministry. See the difference? And so as we conclude this, this look at the heart of the king, this heart of compassion and humility, a heart for God and for people, I want you to see two things briefly as we close. The first is, as you look at this and you see the heart of Jesus on display, do not miss the king's heart for you. Do not miss it. Your needs matter, and they matter to God. You matter. But in the middle of that, never forget that your greatest, most basic, most foundational and permanent need is to be reconciled to God and forgiven of your rebellion against Him. Only Jesus can do that. But the good news is, He will. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the compassionate hand of God is still extended to people today. He says, come. Come to me through my son. Come to me through my son. If you have never surrendered yourself to Jesus, oh, I urge you, forget your pride don't worry about what anybody else thinks, says, or does. Don't matter about anybody else trying to shout you down. You just come to Him and you shout all the louder. Lord, have mercy on me, Son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, my only help and hope, have mercy on me. Come to Him and find the mercy only He can give. Find His heart of compassion. Come to Him. I can remember sitting in a conference once in Asheville, North Carolina. John Owens Roberts was preaching and he hadn't even got to the point of asking people if they would come to respond yet. But as he was preaching and he was talking about our desperate need for God and to be restored and to repent and to make things right with God even as His people, there was a woman sitting behind me who just started to sob. And finally, she couldn't take it anymore. She jumped up and she ran down the aisle, yelling as she went, I can't wait. I have to deal with this now. You know what he said? So don't wait. Come deal with this now. And a woman stepped out of her seat and came and met with her and spent time listening to her and praying with her and dealing with that right then. It doesn't matter what anybody else says or thinks. Your need for Jesus is that great. His help for you is that great. And this is that serious. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And if you are a follower of Christ here today, I urge you, do not neglect, do not neglect the fact that Jesus in chapter 20 we saw last week told His disciples that their heart was to be modeled on His that service and sacrifice. Do not miss the king's heart expressed through you. Here at church, at home, out in the community.
at our picnic in a few minutes? Are you more worried about making sure you get one piece of every kind of dessert on your plate before everybody else? Or are you here because, man, I get time to just sit and talk and connect with people. I get to interact with people and love people. May God give us his eyes for people so that even as we're doing good things and necessary things, we're not distracted disciples, but our hearts and our eyes are tuned in. Amen? My prayer for you, for me, for us is that God will grant us the heart of Jesus, a heart of compassion and humility that will bring glory to God and good to others no matter what anybody else thinks. Are you in? Let's stand and sing together.